listening to a message from Park Springs Bible Church, located in Arlington, Texas, where we discover life in the power of God's grace and share His life-changing grace with others. Join us as we hear from the Word. Good morning, everyone. We continue to discover in the gospel of Jesus Christ that we are lacking nothing in him. Charlie so marvelously opened up to us uh, last week in James 3 that even when hurtful, harmful, hateful words are spoken to us, we're lacking nothing because our life is not defined by the words that are spoken to us, but by the living word, the living Lord Jesus Christ. And this morning, we're going to continue on going deeper in James, and we're going to discover that we are lacking nothing, even in painful conflict, even in painful conflict that perhaps our words have caused. And I'm going to do something a little different this morning and use a hypothetical example for the entire sermon to help us dig into a little more of what James is saying to us. So I just want to be clear, the example is hypothetical. Hypothetical, you are not allowed to get tense. Are we good? Oh, good. Okay, let's go. So, Alan is happily married and has three children under the age of 10. He works as a vice president of finance of a large construction company. He's a committed Christian. He is a follower of Jesus Christ. He and his wife go to church. They just started teaching in the children's Sunday school, and they love it, but Alan would tell you that he struggles with his anger. And so when Alan comes home tired and stressed from work and the kids haven't done their homework, Alan sometimes loses it. He raises his voice. He threatens consequences. Sometimes Alan pounds the table or slams his hand against the wall. Sometimes the kids cry. When his wife tries to intervene, Alan says, stay out of it, honey. You know the rule. The homework has to be done before I come home. If you did your job better, we wouldn't have this problem. And after these outbursts of anger, Alan feels terrible. Sometimes he apologizes to his kids. Sometimes he apologizes to his, his wife. Alan wants to change. And he prays. He says, Lord, you see my anger, and I confess my sin to you. I want to be a more loving and patient dad. Help me. And Alan tries, and, and, and he even memorizes some verses from Proverbs on, on anger, and he, he wants to, to grow in this area, but then Johnny gets a D-plus in science. And the teacher says, the problem here is that Johnny wasn't turning in his daily homework on time. Boom! Alan has had it. Hulk 2.0. So is Alan a, a bad dad? I think Alan is a good dad. I think Alan is a good dad because Alan wants to change. Alan wants God to change him into a more 
patient and loving father. Alan does not want to have conflict, painful conflict with his wife and his children. He loves them. Alan's dream and desire is to have a a joyful home, a Christ-centered home, a, a fun family. So why is there so much conflict between Alan and the family he loves so dearly? Why is there so much conflict between us and the ones that we love so dearly in our marriage, in our home, those friends that we love or loved, people here at church? Conflict is inevitable. Destructive conflict is optional. And Alan needs to to take hold of what James is going to teach us here in chapter 4. And we do too. Because in some moment and some place, we are all Alan. So please turn with me to James 4. Or find it in your uh, digital version. James chapter 4. We're going to begin with verse 1 and go through verse 10. James 4, 1 through 10. We're going to talk about three questions this morning, three simple questions. Question number one is, where does destructive conflict come from? That's verses one through four. The second question is, what does God do in the midst of our destructive conflict? That's verses five and six. And then the third question is, how do we respond to what God is doing That will be in verses 7 through 10. Three simple questions. Question number one is, where does destructive conflict come from? It comes from my desire. It comes from my passionate desire to get what I want the way I want it. Conflict comes because I know what I want, and I know I'm right. Verse 1, James says, what causes... Quarrels and what causes fights among you, among those that that we love. And Alan might say, well, the reason we have quarrels and fights is because the homework doesn't get done on time. That's our go-to, isn't it? Yes, we have quarrels and fights and conflicts because uh, he didn't do, because she said, because my, my parents this, because my boss that, because somebody at church, somebody didn't do what somebody was supposed to do. And guess what? Sometimes that's true. Often it's true. Somebody didn't do what somebody was supposed to do. Although that somebody is never me, of course. But James says, even if it's true that somebody didn't do what somebody should have done, that's not the cause of the conflict. The cause is your passionate desire to get what you want. And that's what James says in the second half of verse 1. He says, is it not this, is the cause not this, that your passions are at war within you? What a phrase. Your passions are at war. We wage war. Our desires are so important. We wage war to get what we want. And James might say to Alan, your desire for the kids to have the homework done so that you can enjoy them When you get home, that's why you have the rule. It's a good desire. But the cause of the conflict is your passionate desire that that happened. In fact, your desire is so important to you that you're willing to wage war if you don't get 
what you want. So we are all Alan. Maybe we don't wage war openly. We're skilled at using uh, the cold shoulder. We're skilled at using uh, not-so-subtle consequences. We're skilled at using resentment. If you're an introvert like me, we're, we are very skilled at judging and condemning people in our heart because I know what I want and I know I'm right. In verse 2, it talks about some of the ways we wage war. It says, you desire and you do not have, so you, you murder with angry and destructive words that Charlie laid out for us last week in James 3. You covet, says James, and this word in Greek is literally the, the sound of hissing, boiling water. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. And this intense self-seeking, self-serving even begins to spill over into our relationship with God. That's the second part of verse 2. It says, you do not have because you do not ask. And I don't need to ask here in this conflict, Lord. I mean, all you need to do is just make these kids do their homework. That, that simple. I don't need a miracle. Or if we do pray, we pray to get what we want. My way. James says in verse 3, you ask, you pray, and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions to get what you want. Have you ever done that? Pray to get what I want my way? I have, I do. Yes. And just think for a minute about how that would really not help us in our walk with God. If God were to say to Alan, Alan, you're right, as you always are, Alan. <laughs> and you know what I'm going to do this week? I'm, gonna, I'm just going to throw down some extra grace from heaven, and I'm going to make those kids do their homework on time so you can get some well-deserved rest. So if God did that, the homework would get done on time. And Alan would become even more enmeshed, more entrapped in waging war to get his way because now God's got my back. So here's the principle we need to remember this morning. At the bottom of every destructive conflict is my passionate desire for what I want. At the bottom of every destructive conflict is my passionate desire because I'm willing to wage war to get it. And you know what? That's actually good news. Good news. Because we can't control what somebody else is going to do. But did you know that your passionate desires, my passionate desires, that's God's workshop. That's God's anvil. That's God's forge. That's actually a place where God loves to work because that's the real me and it's the real you. And, th and that work starts in our, in our loves. That's verse 4. James says, you adulterous people. Oh. You love your desires more than you love me. Th th this phrase shocks us. You adulterous people, says James. Actually, that's a polite translation. The Greek text literally says, adulteresses. 
Why would James use such a strong word, even a, a word that is offensive? And, and I think he is reminding his audience of Jewish Christians what they knew so well from the Old Testament of how the nation of Israel time and time and time again was unfaithful to God's steadfast love for them. For example, the prophet Hosea says, we'll have it here on the screen, Actually, if we go back to that one, thank you. Hosea 3.1, and the Lord said to me, go again and love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. We love our raisin cakes don't we? Yeah. And when, when James uses this phrase, you adulterous people, he's giving us a key insight. And the key insight is this. Any horizontal interpersonal conflict I have is first a vertical conflict with God. If I'm in a destructive horizontal interpersonal conflict, it is first a love conflict, a vertical love conflict with God. The uh, author and biblical counselor, David Paulison, talks about a time in his marriage uh, when he had a lot of conflict with his wife, Nan. And the conflict was, was pretty simple, pretty basic. So on Sunday night, David, after a long week of work and an intense weekend of ministry, he wanted one thing, relax. In his words, I wanted to sit on the couch with a glass of cool guava juice and eat Fig Newtons and read the sports page in peace. And his wife, Nan, who had also had a very intense week of much hard work, on Sunday night, she wanted one thing, connect. She wanted to sit on the couch together and talk about uh, their week and about what they had felt and about the plans for the next week. And I, and I love how David Paulison describes their conflict. He says, there was one track and two trains. And at exactly 8 p.m. on Sunday night, the northbound rest and relax train and the southbound marital connection train were due to collide. <laughs> and they did, and there were train wrecks. And David Pallison says, I came to see that our grumbling words and our critical attitude toward each other came out of what we loved most. I loved relax more than the living God. Nan loved connect more than the living God. Where do our marriage trains collide? My needs versus your career dreams. My money versus your material desires. My plans versus your pleasure. My comfort versus your comfort. My way versus your way as we try and raise these kids we, we love so well. Two trains on one track. But the, the big train wreck is vertical. That's what James says in the second part of verse 4. He says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world 
makes himself an enemy of God. Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. And when we hear this phrase, friendship with the world, we always think, oh yeah, friendship with the world. That's all those worldly people that do those worldly things that I don't do. I've got my list of worldly things. I can give you the list if you want it. I don't do those things. But the essence of friendship with the world that James is talking about here is, what do I do? Do I do as the world does when my passionate desires are frustrated? Do I act like the world acts when I don't get my raisin cakes? Let me clarify something here. I am not saying it's a bad idea to have rules about homework. So, too bad, kids. Uh, Rules about homework, those are good rules. We had rules about homework. They actually help to avoid conflict. And I am am certainly not saying that anyone here should ever give into or accept abusive or destructive conduct by a spouse or any other person. Well, I'm not saying that. James is not talking about that. James is saying here that if you are willing to wage war and break relationships to get what you think you are entitled to, you are living like the world. So maybe we have to change how we pray and say, Heavenly Father, honestly, Is there something I love more than you? And what if the answer is yes? What if the answer is maybe? What if I find ugly stuff in my heart and soul? What will God do? That's question number two. What will God do in this destructive conflict? And the answer is God will give more grace. God will walk right straight into the middle of that destructive conflict that I caused and give more grace. That's what verse 5 says. It says, do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit he has made to dwell in us? James is contrasting our adulterous spirit with God's yearning jealousy, his yearning loving spirit to have us as his own. And even though there's a lot of debate about how to interpret verse five, I wanna stick with the the ESV because I think what James is saying here is, do you think that God will just stand idly by and watch your love for him go south? He won't. He loves you intensely, intensely. He loves you passionately. He yearns jealously over you. So what does he do? Look at verse six. It says, but he, but God gives more grace. He gives a greater grace. He gives extraordinary, abundant, generous grace right in the middle of this conflict. More grace to do what? More grace to bring me to my senses and turn my love back to him. And yes, God gives grace to forgive me because I I did it again. And yes, God gives grace so that I could ask forgiveness of someone that I hurt. And yes, God asks forgiveness. uh, God, I'm sorry, gives grace to to help me figure out a creative solution to to the homework conundrum. But above all things, God gives more grace, gives greater grace to bring me to my senses and turn my love back to the one who loves me so much. 
That's what we see in the book of Hosea, which I think is the background to James 4. So how did God react when he felt like he was losing Israel's love? What did he do? He gave more grace. Look at Hosea 2. We'll put it up on the screen for you here. This is verses 14 and 15. God said this to his wife, Israel. Therefore, behold, I will allure her, and I will bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And I will give her her vineyards, and I will make the valley of Achor a door of hope. The valley of Achor, Achor means trouble. The valley of Achor was the place in Joshua 7 where Achan was stoned because Achan took the battle spoils. He, he, he saw that cloak from Shinar that he wanted. He wanted the 200 shekels of silver. He wanted that bar of gold. He took it. And God says, I will take that valley of Achor where there's a, a heap of stones piled up on the sin of idolatry, and I will turn it into the door of hope for you. And we have a valley of Achor as well. But it's not a valley, it's a hill. It's a hill called Golgotha, where Jesus Christ took on himself my idolatrous self-love. He took on himself my spiritual adultery so that he can say to, to all of us in, the, in his son, Jesus Christ, these words. Go to the next slide, please. He says, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice, Christ's righteousness and justice. In steadfast love and mercy, I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord, and you will know the love-changing grace of God in Jesus Christ and his life-changing power so that you can walk with him. God gives greater grace to change our loves because love change always comes before lasting life change. And I love what Michael Reeves said in his book, Rejoicing in Christ. He said, there is nothing more holy than heartfelt delight in Christ and nothing is more powerful to change lives. So God doesn't run away from our destructive conflicts in the valley of Achor. He runs into the valley of Achor and opens the door of hope and pours out his love-changing grace in the person of Jesus Christ. He pours it out on you and me and anyone who is humble enough to receive it. And that's what James says in the second part of verse 6. He says, therefore it, Scripture, James is referring to Proverbs 3.34, therefore, Scripture says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Who's the proud person? It's the one who says, I want what I want, period. God gives grace to the humble. The humble person says, Lord, I want what you want, but help me. I need your grace. When we are proud and God opposes us, it's like running against the wind. Have you ever run against the wind, run into the wind? I used to do some running, and I, when, you had to, when you had to run into the wind, it was pure torture. I hated it. The wind is whistling in your ears, and you're running hard, but you're, but you're hardly moving. You just want to quit and go home. 
That's, that's what that means, that God opposes the proud. They're running into the wind of God. And he is set against them. And their whole life is like running into that, into that wind. But God gives grace to the humble. So how does that actually work? It's not automatic. And that's question number three. How do we respond to this God who gives more grace? And the answer is, is simple. We humble ourselves. We respond with humility. And humility is not a one-time passive prayer of, oh, Lord, help me to be a little bit more humble today. Humility is active seeking receptivity to what God wants to do in us. Active seeking receptivity. And God gives grace to the humble in verses 7, 8, and 9. James is going to look, lay out for us what humility, what active humility really looks like. And in James' typical fashion, he uses nine verbs, nine imperative verbs. He's going to lay it on us to talk to us about how humility works. And notice that every one of these verbs is a vertical verb. They have to do with love change and then life change brought by God. So James starts out by saying in verse 7, submit yourselves therefore to God. Submit, Jim, repent. Repent of waging war to get what you want. And our repentance is actually a beautiful thing that testifies to our faith in God's grace. That's how we resist the devil. Verse 7, James says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. We don't attack the devil. We, we resist the devil. And above all, we resist his big lie that I'm entitled to wage war if I have a right to what I, what I want. As many of you know, the word devil means uh, accuser. It means slanderer. It means separator, thinking of relationships. And I've noticed over the years that this is the way Satan works, especially in the heat of conflict. He accuses other people before you. He, he accuses people and says, oh, you know, this is what he thinks about you. Oh, she said that because, you know, she just thinks this about you. Oh, they, they ignore you, you know. They, they treat you like dirt. He accuses and while he is accusing other people before you, guess what? <laughs> he is accusing you before other people. And above all, he's accusing God, and he's saying, you better hang on to what you got, because I don't think God is going to give you anything better than, than what I can offer you. See, Satan is having a field day. A field day. He loves conflict that destroys love. But when you submit to God and when we repent of waging war, he flees. Verse 8 says, then we draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Great news. And for sure we draw near to God when we spend time meditating in his word, when we take time to pray and, and open up our heart, when we take time to fast, when that's appropriate. Those are ways we draw near to God. But I think James' emphasis here is that we draw near to God in, the, in this conflict. And we see that God draws near to us in this complicated, sometimes bitter conflict where there's unforgiveness, which is one of Satan's greatest weapons, 
About two years ago, I got an email from a woman in her 40s, and she hadn't spoken to her father for years. Their the relationship was shattered. And she, uh, she was writing to me because she had taken a course I was teaching on conflict resolution and forgiveness, and I often finish up that course by sharing with the students something that I've shared with a number of you in this church of my own failure to forgive my father before it was too late for his alcoholism and for abandoning our family. So she wrote me this email and she said, God's speaking to me. And she said, I, I, I know now I have to forgive my father. I want to forgive my father like Christ has forgiven me. So she wrote her father a letter and she shared with me a few lines from the letter. It says, Dear Dad, the pride in my heart has robbed me of much valuable time with you. I ask you to forgive me for letting my pride speak more strongly than my love for you. I only ask that you would allow me to open my life to you and to renew our relationship as father and daughter because I love you and I miss you. How would you like to get a letter like that? God touched the heart of her father. He forgave her. And even more, this father wanted to know what in the world would ever move my daughter to write me a letter like that after all these years. And she told him. She said, Dad, what I have discovered in Jesus Christ and the forgiveness that he's given me is the reason I'm writing this letter. And God began to work in the circumstances which included the serious illness of this father. And this father through these circumstances, put his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as his Savior. And not every story turns out like that. I wish they, they all did. But God's promise here is always faithful. Draw near to me, and you'll, you'll see. You'll watch me drawing near to you to work in this conflict. And then James goes on in the second half of verse 8. He's got some more imperative verbs for us, numbers 4 and 5. He says, cleanse your hands you sinners. Yeah, our actions need to change. Our hands need to be cleansed of harmful, vengeful, or abusive actions. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. The same word we saw in chapter 1 when we talked about burning bridges. We purify our hearts when we begin to pray with single-mindedness. God, I've been so focused on winning, but now, Lord, I want you to win. That's what I really want. That's single-mindedness. Then in verse 9, the hardest verse of all, James calls us to, to grieve over the pain that we've caused in destructive conflict. He says, be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. And we weep because we finally see how much pain how much hurt, how much harm I've caused by waging war. And then God says to us, okay, I can see you're really sorry about this. And so now you can just kind of get up out of the mud and do a little bit. No. Look at verse 10. Verse 10 says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. You. He will exalt you. I mean, is this some kind of a Bible typo? He doesn't say, humble yourself before the Lord and exalt him. Certainly the Bible does say that. 
No, he says, humble yourselves before the Lord and, and he will exalt you. He will exalt you, me. He will exalt Alan as we walk in this active humility. So, so what does this mean here? He will exalt you. The, verse doesn't, the text doesn't explain it, but here's my best shot. I think James is remembering the teaching of Jesus, repeated teaching of Jesus, that the one who exalts himself will be what? Humbled. The one who humbles himself will be what? Exalted. Remember the story about the, the wedding feast. And Jesus said, yeah, you come into the wedding feast, first thing you do is make a beeline for the best chair. What's going to happen? The host will come and say, you need to move down to another place. So when you come to the wedding feast, go in and sit down humbly in the lowest chair so that the host, and who's the host? The host is God, so that God will come and say, friend, move up to a higher place. When we humble ourselves, God says, my dear one, move up, move forward to the life that I want to give you. And so here's the principle we have for this morning. Humility before God is the open door to God's love-changing grace and life-changing power. Humility before God is the open door that God might exalt you with his love-changing grace and life-changing power in Christ. So what does that mean for Alan or for us? Alan needs to understand and I need to understand that confession of our sin always brings God's forgiveness, always. But confession of our sin by itself does not change what we love most. And so even though Alan keeps on confessing his sin of anger, if he clings to his passionate desire that all the homework is done, when he hits the door, there won't be any heart change, there won't be any love change, Alan will not be shaped into the dad he longs to be. Which goes farther than just being more patient when the homework isn't done on time. Alan has to take hold of the full measure of the love-changing grace of Jesus Christ for him, Alan, a man as imperfect and broken as the one who is standing before you this morning. Alan has to take hold of the living love of the living Savior, the Lord Jesus, who can pour into Alan's heart the love, the joy, the peace that he longs to give to his family. And that is how God will exalt him. So, what do we want more of? More grace or more raisin cakes? And our Lord Jesus Christ will march straight into our valley of Achor. He, he gladly comes in and he says, I will betroth you to me in love and mercy and faithfulness and you will know me, the Lord, and you will know my life-changing power and all the details of your life. So three, three basic questions. Where does destructive come from? Destructive conflict come from? My self-seeking desires. What will God do in the midst of my destructive conflict? He'll give more grace. 
How do I respond to that? With humility. Active humility. And God will exalt you with his love-changing grace in Christ and his love-changing power that comes to us every day. God is not out to fix our conflicts. God's out to do heart surgery. He does heart surgery by grace if we're humble enough to receive it. I love the way the Irish theologian and scholar J. Alec Moyer describes grace in his message on James 4. He says this, No matter what we do, God is never beaten. His resources are never at an end. His patience is never exhausted. His initiative never stops. His generosity knows no limit. He gives more, more grace. What can we do but pray? Pray with me.